we're not very good on Twitter or um, Instagram, but uh, if you find us on Facebook, it's a pretty lively group in there. Great. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure having you, Hillary. And it's oh, always yeah. a pleasure having you, Sheila. Thank you so much for joining us today on Transpositive. So great to meet You're you, welcome. Sheila. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay, I'm going to stop recording. Hi, Jean. Listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming online at KBOO.FM. and found on every second and fourth Thursday from 10 to midnight, right here on KBOO. Ah! Camera activist Betty Lee has captured 30 years of street protests in Portland from the 1989 demonstration condemning the racist murder of Mullah Gata Sirah to the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020. The Old Mole Variety Hour is pleased to offer a large print of your choice of Betty's most iconic photos to 10 lucky donors during KBOO's fall membership drive. Winners will be selected by lottery and everyone who donates will be eligible. For more details and to see Betty's photos, go to kboo.fm slash b-e-t-t-e-l-e-e. Every Monday morning at 9 a.m., the Old Mole Variety Hour gnaws at the roots of our capitalist system with views, reviews, and interviews that you can sink your teeth into. Music by Lion Rhythms. Hello, ahlan wa sahlan, and welcome to another episode of Arab Voices, coming to you from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM, Houston's community station. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. In this episode of Arab Voices, I will interview Matthew Ho, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a member of the Eisenhower Media Initiative. On Monday, August 30th, the United States announced that it completed its withdrawal from Afghanistan 20 years after it occupied the country. And in response to the attack on the U.S. on September 11, 2001, according to U.S. officials, the Taliban that controls Afghanistan now said the U.S. defeat is a lesson for everyone else. To talk about the war on Afghanistan, the U.S. withdrawal, American interventionist policy, the U.S. foreign policy towards the Middle East, the war on Yemen, war profiteers, and more, we are joined by Matthew Hope. He is a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a member of the Eisenhower Media Initiative. He is a former Marine and State Department official 
who in 2009 resigned his position with the State Department in Afghanistan in protest of the Afghan war. In 2010, he received the Ridenauer Prize for Truth-Telling. Matthew Ho is a member of the Board of Directors of the Council for a Livable World and is an advisory board member for Exposed Facts. He writes on issues of war, peace, and post-traumatic stress disorder recovery. Matthew, welcome to Arab Voices. Hi, thank you so, so much for having me on your program. It's good to have you again on the show. I'd like to start by going back 20 years ago in regards to the U.S. war on Afghanistan, and then we'll talk about your direct involvement with that. But if you could please start with reminding our listeners of how did this all start and why? Well, this, this really starts in the 1970s. Um, Afghanistan uh, is a uh, competition between the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, so this war really is a, a living legacy of the Cold War. Um, it, it, there, are, there are a series of, of, of coups and, 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 and takeovers that occur in Afghanistan in the 1970s. Uh, there is uh, tension within Afghanistan uh, between uh, various divisions within its society, between the, the urban and the rural, the, the secular and the religious, the, the, the progressive and the traditional between ethnicities too um, but what happens is, is by 1979 um, the United States has started to fund uh, Mujahideen groups uh, Islamist rebel groups in Afghanistan in an attempt to overthrow the communist government um, and then even it, it, this is a very this is a nuance a lot of uh, uh, complexities to the story because there are even within the communist government uh, in the communist uh, uh, elements of, of Afghanistan, there are great divisions between them, and that's one of the reasons that prompts the Soviet Union to invade. But, but the, the main point, though, is that Af Afghanistan was a Cold War proxy ground, and, and uh, the United States funds and supports these Islamist rebel groups known as Mujahideen uh, with the intention of trying to cause enough problems in Afghanistan that the Soviet Union will be uh, a, a baited into invading and of course that works and in the, the, the you know the, the plan was by Jimmy Carter's national security advisor Zygmunt Brzezinski to uh, give the Soviet Union its own Vietnam um, the I, there was a, set, a corollary uh, part of that plan was to uh, try and ferment uh, uh, and cause Islamic revolution Islamic uh, you know as, as have been seen in Iran uh, as have been uh, seen in uh, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan in 1978 and 1979 um, caused the same type of, 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 of issues, uh, uh, violence, in Afghanistan uh, that would then be exported to uh, the Muslim republics, the southern republics of the Soviet Union to uh, basically try and disintegrate the Soviet Union from within. You know, that, that's one of the ideas that the Americans have when they're supporting these Mujahideen groups is to, you know, cause and then export this type of, uh, of, of religious uh, revolution. Um, you know, and, and, and so on and on. I mean, we could be here all, all, all day Saeed, talking about the history of this, but that's people have to understand the genesis of this to understand that this war really is not 20 years old. Uh, it did not start on September 11, 2001, but began in the 1970s. And it is, again, a living legacy of the Cold War. Uh, the United States has uh, um, a, a, a massive amount of responsibility uh, for this war, uh, all throughout the last four decades, the United States has been involved, but most expre most expressively uh, in the last 20 years, where the United States has 
uh, after following the 9-11 attacks, uh, invaded and occupied Afghanistan. Um, and that, of course, lasted, that invasion and occupation lasted up until, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, you know, late evening of August 30th, 2021. Yeah, and uh, of course, the U.S. is involved in so many other wars, and we will talk about them shortly. So the U.S. has been uh, arming the Mujahideen prior to that, as you mentioned, and flooding the country with arms and weapons and supporting them to stand up for the Soviet Union. Uh, and now we hear, of course, there is Taliban, there is Al-Qaeda, there is ISIS, the so-called Islamic State. What could you share with us about these different groups in the Middle East? These, these groups all come about as a, 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 as a consequence of the United States trying to manipulate and control um, you know, um, various actors and groups in Muslim nations for its, the United States' own purposes, uh, trying to use these organizations as proxies. Uh, you know, certainly uh, al-Qaeda, of course, it, it comes from the uh, Arab fighters that were uh, brought to Afghanistan by the U.S., by the Saudis, by the Pakistanis to fight against the Soviet Union. They are proxies. Uh, and they, that, of course, from, from that comes al-Qaeda. Uh, you know, bin Laden was brought to Afghanistan and Pakistan by uh, the Americans and the Saudis. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and so al-Qaeda comes from this group of fighters that the Americans thought could they could utilize for their own purposes. Uh, the same with the Taliban. The Taliban um, come from the Mujahideen uh, that fought against the Soviet Union. The Taliban did not exist. The Taliban as an organization per se did not exist in uh, the war against the Soviet Union, but rather they they, they uh, form uh, in the early 1990s as a consequence of the uh, civil war that occurs following the Soviet Union's departure. And it's important for people to remember that the United States did not simply abandon Afghanistan as uh, the, the narrative in the United States wants to, the narrative in the United States simply explains, um, but rather following the Soviet Union's departure in February 1989, the United States, uh, along again with the Saudis and the Pakistanis, continue to arm these Mujahideen groups, uh, continue to fund them, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars a year, until uh, the communist government in Afghanistan uh, uh, collapses in 1992, which was primarily because of the Soviet Union's own collapse, because the Soviet Union was still backing uh, the communist government in Afghanistan. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the Taliban come out of that, right? And in the Islamic State itself, the Islamic State, uh, it, it, the, the, the Islamic State comes from Al Qaeda in Iraq. Al Qaeda in Iraq they did not exist until the United States invaded and occupied uh, uh, Iraq in 2003. Uh, by 2010 or so, Al Qaeda in Iraq has been uh, dissipated. Uh, to the point that they are primarily in uh, the remote parts of Iraq and in western Syria. And then, you know, in, in 2011, 2012, uh, the United States, and again, its allies, the Saudis, uh, in this time along with the Turks, the Qataris, the Emiratis, decide that they will try and utilize uh, the Islamic State and other jihadist groups, uh, Salafist, uh, Wahhabist uh, groups, to, uh, uh, to try and bring down the Assad government. Um, and, um, you know, the idea being that we will utilize this groups, these, these, these groups to take down Assad and they will not turn around and 
you know, face east and cross the literal line in the sand back into Iraq, uh, where many of them came from. I mean, so the the the, um, the hubris and the arrogance and the ignorance that underlies so much of this, and then of course the Islamic State in Khorasan uh, or Islamic State in Afghanistan um, is um, an organization that really comes about in 2015 or so um, from some excellent reporting um, out of Afghanistan by organizations like the Afghan Analyst Network. Uh, we know that um, the Islamic State in Khorasan or the Islamic State in Afghanistan uh, is an organization that is created out of both Pakistani and Afghan uh, militants um, and that there was an effort in 2015 by the Afghan government through their intelligence service, the NDS, which is you know, which is a proxy of the American CIA uh, to try and utilize these militants to cause problems within the Afghan Taliban, to basically fracture the Afghan Taliban from inside. So, again, if you hear echoes of the past, it, it certainly is there. Um, and then when this is seen as not working, uh, we really can't control these guys, these guys are cut loose. Uh, and then around uh, late 2015, 2016, uh, these militants rebrand themselves as the Islamic State, uh, and very smart on their part because at that point the Islamic State controlled vast areas of Syria and Iraq. So these 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 uh, militants uh, rebrand themselves as the Islamic State, even though it doesn't seem like they have any real connections. It wasn't like fighters from the Islamic State in Syria or Iraq picked up and went to Afghanistan. Again, these are Afghans and Pakistanis. Um, but and you know I mean so so they rebrand themselves and they get worldwide attention and um, of course here we are now with uh, the Islamic State who is basically a mortal enemy of, of Afghanistan now threatening uh, now continuing to threaten the stability uh, of Afghanistan as well as uh, threaten the Afghan people and the Taliban now is in pretty much in charge of Afghanistan or what we are hearing uh, so far we'll talk about that a little bit shortly of where we are now after the U.S. withdrawal and so on. But, uh, and this is valuable information you're sharing. We appreciate that. Your involvement with that, obviously you're a former Marine Corps captain, uh, and I know you have experience in Iraq. You've also served in uniform at the Pentagon and as a civilian in Iraq and the State Department, but you also served in Afghanistan. Tell us more about that experience and what led you to resign your position? So I arrived in April of 2009 to Afghanistan uh, with the State Department. I was a, a political officer, um, and I, 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 um, my time was split. Uh, I was in the east for a while uh, um, uh, in, in Nangahar, Kunar, Logman, and Nuristan provinces, and then I went down south uh, and was in Zabul province. Um, and uh, what I saw in Afghanistan was was no different than what I'd seen in Iraq. Um, there there was there was no fundamental difference uh, in the wars. Uh, both wars were um, efforts by the United States to uh, win militarily in wars that had no purposes other than for the United States's own domestic political concerns and you know basically the ideals of those who wanted to expand the American Empire. Um, you know, the Afghan war was just as corrupt, as immoral, uh, and, you know, and criminal in many ways as the Iraq war. The purpose of the United States military in Afghanistan was not to help the Afghan people. Again, it was to bolster the political 
goals of, 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 of the U.S. as well as fulfill the fantasies of those who want to see the U.S. empire expand. I mean, yes, the, you know, the, the, the direct and precipitant cause of the United States going into Afghanistan was the 9-11 attacks. But again, I mean, but, but you know, 9-11 attacks were carried out by al-Qaeda, an organization of less than 400 people in September 2001. So, you know, this, this notion that the way to handle that was to invade and occupy a country was something that was wrongheaded from the start. Uh, but, you know, by the time I got to Afghanistan in 2001, I, I, I certainly had, uh, or I'm sorry, I got to Afghanistan in 2009, I certainly had um, my my own struggles with the wars. My certainly was 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 was, was um, I was suicidal over what I had taken part in Iraq. Uh, you know, I was I was continuing to lie to myself or make reasons for continuing, um, you know, in these wars. And I, I think I was holding out that well, the Afghan war was going to be different. That somehow what we were doing in the Af- in, in the war in Afghanistan was really you know trying to keep back a reactionary uh, uh, insurgency that represented a uh, a brutal uh, revolutionary repressive government in the Taliban. Um, and but however, when I got there, it was very clear that everything I had been told about how the Afghan war was not that way became readily apparent to me that that is exactly what is happening. We are involved in a war that is not what the propaganda says it is, uh, that, again, it's very similar to the Iraq war. It's no different, really, um, and that the, the Obama administration is no different than the Bush administration. Uh, they are escalating this war, trying to win this war militarily for, uh, you know, uh, no, no more reason than the, the glory of the presidency. Uh, you know, the Romans used to say for the glory of the empire, of the emperor and the empire, you know, and, and really was no different for the Americans in Afghanistan. So uh, after being in Afghanistan five months, seeing so much again of what I saw in Iraq and Afghanistan, no longer able to lie to myself about it, you know, uh, you know, being morally and intellectually broken at that point uh, after five months, you know, seeing the ongoing escalation of the war in Afghanistan. Yeah, I, I resigned in protest over the war. Wow, five months into serving uh, in Afghanistan. That was under the Obama administration at that time, right? Yes, yes, it was. Yes, and yes. Uh, and of course, yes. you talked about Iraq, which is nothing less than a catastrophic war that destroyed the country based on lies, pure lies, fabricating evidence to show that Iraq was also responsible and behind 9-11, and none of that was true whatsoever. And they disseminated the country, and the effects of it are going to last for many, many years to come. I mean, these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, I'm going to talk about Yemen and Libya and others shortly also with this U.S. uh, interventionalist policy uh, throughout the world, really, not just the Middle East. But they are costing the U.S., they are costing the Middle East, they are costing the world a lot. The human cost, of course, the most expensive with thousands and thousands and millions of people in other countries are killed. They die out of these wars that are manufactured by the United States. U.S. servicemen are killed. Trillions of tax dollars are spent to profit uh, companies. And it is really catastrophic what the United States is doing. And it seems to be done regardless of who's 
in the presidency in the White House, a Democrat, a Republican. We've seen what's happening under the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration. A catastrophe continues under Biden in Yemen and now in Afghanistan, although now it has ended, but ended catastrophically also. So what's your take on the current withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan on August 30th? Well, it was, it was you know, inevitable. Um, you know, one, one thing just to get back to, to some of your, your, your points about making, Saeed, about how catastrophic mm-hmm. this is, this really differentiates the American empire from so many other previous empires. You know, um, say, when, say, you know, just go back to the Romans. Say when, when, when Caesar invades Gaul, right, and, ta- and, and seizes Gaul, he sends back wealth back to Rome. He sends back slaves back to Rome, right? There is an appreciable gain Again, immoral and criminal. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it was a good thing, but but at least at least the empire there was there was an extraction, right? There there was a, there was a wealth gained by the empire, you know. And you could say the same for the European colonial empires. There was a wealth extracted. There was there was there was a, 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 a money to be made, so to speak, by these empires. And what you see with the American empire um, is that. It does not do this. It, certainly, it's corporations benefit and stuff like that. But with these particular wars, especially, you know, and this is how desperate and how um, uh, desperate and how fraudulent the architects and the apologists and the officers of, of the American Empire are. It doesn't even provide in the traditional ways that empires typically do. You know, the, these these wars have just been the looting of the U.S. Treasury. By American corporations, not so much the looting of the country of these countries by American corporations, right? I mean, you you, you would expect that in an, in a, a traditional empire, uh, you know, a, a country is invaded, is occupied, and then its wealth extracted. Well, you know, the United States went into these countries, invaded, occupied, and destroyed everything, and extracted very little. And then paid off the the, the corporations, the, the the people who are interested in making money off of this, out of its own treasury. So not only is it um, the, the, these war these wars immoral and criminal, but they're absolutely um, uh, uh, you know they're 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 uh, amazingly inept, uh, right? I mean, so it, it, there's a, there's a um, not, so there is a very real uh, a shallowness and um, fraudulence. Uh, to what the United States is doing overseas, because even if the United States had said one in Afghanistan or have one in Iraq, whatever that means, what would have been gained? What would have been accomplished? And so you have to come back to the understanding that these wars, this this expansion of empire and the maintenance of empire is really dumb for U.S. geopolitical reasons, for the fantasy of, of empire, right? For the fantasy of, of American exceptionalism. And you see this all throughout, as you pointed out. It's no different whether it be um, uh, Republican or Democratic administrations. There are factions within uh, those who are, you know, the officers of the empire, you know, those within the Bush administration, within the uh, Obama administration, and within uh, the Trump administration in terms of their outlook and what, what the United States should be doing overseas to maintain and expand its empire. But, you know, the economic reasons are, are really um, uh, are, are often quite secondary and often are fail, are, are, are fail to be achieved. And again, it becomes a looting of the American Treasury as opposed to looting of other countries. 
um you know the the uh uh the 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 way that these wars have been carried out um and the costs of them um have been you know absolutely staggering um but it's also a reflection i think of the broader american political and economic system this neoliberal system that delivers to the few that delivers to the wealthy that delivers to the corporate meanwhile um the rest uh, of the society is increasingly giving less and provided for less uh, and you i know, think you can see as most yeah yeah and, and i want to share this with our listeners we'll go back to afghanistan uh, shortly but i want to share this with our listeners uh, what you just mentioned you know it reminds me of i'm looking at one of your articles because i was reading that uh, In 2014, you wrote, and I want to quote a portion of it, you wrote, if American bombs and bullets were the answer to the civil wars and political disorder in the Muslim world, then the situation would have been resolved in Iraq in 2003. The Obama administration's surge of nearly 70,000 troops into Afghanistan in 2009 and 2010 would have produced reconciliation among the Afghans and not the bloodshed of the last five years. The American bombs that fell on Libya in 2011 would have created peace rather than the civil war that is still ravaging Libya's countryside and cities. That was in one of your articles that you published in 2014. Yes, uh, and of course, as as we know, uh, the, the situation in those countries I listed um, and, and others I did not list have um, are, are quite dire, uh, and even in countries say like uh, Syria and Iraq, where the violence has um, abated quite, quite, quite a bit, you know, uh, quite dramatically in the last several years. Um, there's still the the, the 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 suffering continues, the devastation uh, uh, continues, the the you know, and all the consequences of the war. Uh, the destruction of, of infrastructure, of civil society, uh, you know, the poisoning, the poisoning of, of the ground and the water that is contributing to just, you know, uh, unimaginable suffering uh, of the people in these countries, they continue. So this idea that, yes, somehow that the violence was going to produce anything other than these consequences, uh, these disastrous and, 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 and traumatic and, and, and just uh, a, a continuous uh, consequences, uh, you know, it, it definitely uh, uh, it, it was definitely uh, something that was was wrong. And and but again, that view that you know the United States must use violence in order to uh, maintain uh, and expand its empire is shared by all Republican and Democratic administrations. I mean, this goes back to the end of this. The United States has always been an empire. You know, you know, I mean, it, the United States comes out of the British Empire. Uh, the United States, when it becomes the United States. Expanding westward, so it is an empire on this continent. Just because we weren't going overseas at that point and conquering other lands does not mean we are an empire. It's simply the fact that we didn't need to do that. We had an entire continent to conquer, and the United States did that. It, it destroyed the Native American population and used uh, slavery uh, to, to to create its wealth. Um, and literally, I mean, within years, I mean, within years of the last Native American tribe being subjugated in the 1890s. The United States is beginning its overseas empire building. It takes Hawaii, right? It, it, it goes on and it engages in the Spanish-American War. 
It is involved in China. You have, uh, uh, you know, the United States Navy and Marine Corps uh, kills thousands of Koreans, uh, you know, in an attempt to open up Korea for trade. Uh, you know, before the Civil War, you have Commodore Perry arriving in Japan, and by the threat of violence, opening China, I mean, sorry, opening Japan to the rest of the world. So the United States has always been an empire, um, and it, it, it really um, comes into the, this, this, this dominant global empire at the end of the Second World War, where much of the industrial, industrialized world, with the exception of the United States and Canada, has been destroyed by the Second World War. I mean, destroyed, leveled. Um, and so the United States finds itself in a position uh, in, in, in the 19, at the end of the 1940s as being um, you know, the strongest nation on the planet um, with an intact economy, an intact infrastructure, it was the recipient of, of the great brain drain, as people uh, describe it. But at that time, a man named George Kennan, who is a State Department officer, who is the architect of uh, this, the U.S. government's containment strategy of the Soviet Union, uh, Kennan writes in, in the 1940s, he says, uh, look, the United States has more than half the world's wealth. It has less than 5% of the world's population. And the primary goal of every successive American presidential administration will be to maintain that inequality. And so this is how you arrive at um, both Democratic and Republican uh, uh, administrations um, choosing to pursue uh, the, the needs of uh, the empire, maintaining it and expanding it. And to do that, you utilize violence. Um, and that is how you, you can have wars like these over the last 20 years, which have uh, produced Nothing that you can point to to say, look, this was a benefit uh, to the American uh, empire, let alone, of course, nothing you can say at all about this is a benefit to any of the people who suffered in these wars. Um, and again, the extraction is simply not there because it's been a looting of the American treasury as opposed to a looting of these countries because the American ha Americans have gone in and rather than um, uh, uh, taking from these countries, we've just destroyed everything. And I, some of that you can see in the nation-building efforts. When, when the United States starts nation-building efforts in Iraq and Afghanistan under the Bush administration, so much of that is, is based upon this idea that if we build these nations up, there's, there's an element of American exceptionalism that we are going to help these brown people be like us, right? We have an, a, a white man's burden, an obligation to lift them up. We are at the top. We are the apex of civilization, and we should bring others up to our level. There's a very good amount of that. But there's also a, a, an understanding that if what we need to do in order to benefit from these colonies of ours, for lack of a better term, because that's basically what they are, is we need to build them up. We need to improve them so that we can gain more wealth. The wealthier they are, the wealthier we will be. And that's certainly what you see in the Bush administration with the emphasis on, on nation building. Um, you know, as well as too, there was an idea within the Bush administration to, uh, uh, you know, try and capture uh, various industries for American use, uh, and of course, all that fails uh, spectacularly. Uh, you know, uh, in the Obama administration, it's a liberal interventionist uh, I ideal within those who are uh, working on behalf of the empire. Uh, you know, so the Sam Powers, the Susan Rice's, uh, those types. You know, this idea, again, it's an American exceptionalism, but it's an idea of America to the rescue, uh, again, a form of white man's burden, that we will rescue these people, that we will uh, make them better, uh, that we are inherently good, uh, and at the same time, 
the you know people are making people are also getting very wealthy off of this. So it's good all around, you know, for the Americans. And then finally, under the Trump administration, you see a faction within uh, the empire that is represented through men like Jim Mattis, the Secretary of Defense, John Kelly, the White House Chief of Staff, and H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, advisor who do not view um, these parts of the world as anything other than front frontiers or borderlands of the empire, um, that where uh, the people need to be subjugated, that there are threats to the empire, that these barbarians, so to speak, need to be kept down. We need to control them. The phrase that is often heard uh, within, say, the CIA or the special operations community, but accurately reflects um, this uh, type of thinking is, um, you know, we have to mow the grass. You know, the grass must be mowed in these borderlands and frontier areas. And there are two books, I think, that people can go back to. Uh, and this is all, you know, a lot of this is, is a legacy of, 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 of the United States Foundation, its expansion westward, its decimation of the Native Americans, its slavery. But it's also, too, an extension of, of the United States becoming uh, this superpower at the end of the Second World War. And then also, too, the, the United States, uh, you know, quote, winning, unquote, the Cold War. And you see in two books, especially in the 1990s, that reflect this attitude and reflect this thinking, reflect the way that these people in, in power tend to view the United States and the rest of the world. You know, it, one is uh, Francis Fukuyama's The End of, of History, uh, as well as Sam Huntington's The Clash of Civilizations. Fukuyama's book posits that, um, um, you know, Western democracy, uh, liberalism, um, our form of the United States, Modern capitalism is the, uh, uh, the, the, the is, is the end of history. It's the apex. Nothing more will come because this is the best that can be done. And that is certainly what you see in the neoconservatives and the liberal interventionists of the Bush and Obama administrations. Meanwhile, um, uh, Sam Huntington's uh, class of civilization, this idea of borderlands, frontiers, et cetera, is certainly what you see in those um, who populate the, uh, uh, the Trump administration, the Mattises. The, the, the Kellys, the McMasters, and, and you certainly see a lot of those types on television today. Uh, these are the people who are uh, demanding that the United States must keep a presence in Afghanistan, must maintain its wars all throughout the Muslim world, because we need to control those areas because they are dangerous. Again, they are borderlands, they are frontiers. This is where the barbarians are. Yeah, you know, speaking uh, of books, that reminds me of uh, a book called Orientalism by uh, the late uh, Edward Said, uh, highly recommended. Yes. You're listening to Arab Voices coming to you from the studios of KPFT Houston. This is Said, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Our guest today on Arab Voices is Matthew Ho, a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a member of the Eisenhower Media Initiative. He is a former Marine and State Department official who in 2009 resigned his position with the State Department in Afghanistan in protest of the Afghan war. We are speaking with him about the war on Afghanistan, the U.S. withdrawal, the war on Yemen, on Iraq, U.S. foreign policy towards the Middle East, and more. Now, I want to talk about war profiteers and the military-industrial complex in a few minutes, but uh, with Afghanistan, with the withdrawal now, of course, it has been dramatic, uh, to say the least, uh, withdrawal. There has been attacks on the Kabul airport. Many people were killed, Afghanis. There were U.S. Uh, 
Uh, servicemen were also killed there. The U.S. supposedly retaliated. They launched a drone, just like they have been launching drones left and right all over. In that drone attack, they wiped out an entire family. Ten members of the same family, including six children, were killed in that drone strike in Afghanistan by the United States. They have used them in Yemen, in Iraq, in many other countries. And under the Obama administration, you know, it's not unique to the Biden administration. It wasn't unique to the Trump administration. Under Obama, they, there was that famous attack by U.S. gunship uh, uh, where they attacked and destroyed a hospital in Afghanistan, uh, the Kunduz Hospital, massacring dozens of patients and staff um, inside. Where do you see this withdrawal of the U.S. from Afghanistan now? And uh, what shape would you describe Afghanistan is in now with this withdrawal? Well, you know, the withdrawal, um, you know, as they say with the drone strikes, um, the with, you know, it, it, particularly that last drone strike on Sunday in Kabul that, that as you said, site, uh, wiped out an entire family. Um, the Americans claimed that the drone strike was used uh, to stop a, a car bomb from happening, that the United States uh, it used a drone, uh, uh, blew up a, a car bomb, and there were secondary explosions, and that's how these poor civilians were killed. And the, the difference between this drone strike and the thousands of others that you, uh, that you referenced um, is that this time it happened in the center of Kabul, and there are journalists all around. So within hours of the drone strike occurring on Sunday, um, the, uh, the 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 falseness, the the the, the falsity of the um, claims by the Americans about what had happened were shown to be untrue. Uh, literally, dozens of journalists were able to visit the site and see that no, this car uh, was not driven by terrorists. It was not a car bomb. There was no secondary explosions. I mean, not anyone who's actually seen a car bomb before or the, the aftermath of it can look at the car that was hit and said this was not a car bomb. Um, but also, too, interviewing the family, the people in the neighborhood, and finding that the only people killed were, were, was this family. And that's the difference between this drone strike and the thousands of others um, that have killed you know, uh, uh, countless, you know, unknown numbers of people is at this time that there were, there were journalists there who could report on it and, and tell the truth. Um, and what that does is this ties into the shame that is, that, uh, is felt, uh, with the American wars and the shame is often not expressed because it's hidden. But I think the, the begin that because the wars are hidden. Um, but the willingness uh, to kill like this on the way out uh, and then to, to, to the evacuation, it all boils down to um, the shame that is inherent within such you know, immoral and, and criminal acts. And one of the ways that shame is dealt with is by a lack of transparency and a willingness to lie. Uh, you look at the Pentagon spokesperson, John Kirby, who still with a, a straight face is saying even 48 hours after the attack, uh, uh, the killing of this family, um, you know, after conclusive evidence by, again, dozens of journalists um, that this is what happened. A family was killed. There were no terrorists involved. Um, John Kirby, still with a straight face, says we are, you know, doesn't admit to it, right? I mean, so the willingness to lie comes from a great degree of shame and knowledge that what we're doing is wrong 
that it's immoral. It's for the pursuit of our own political goals and not the benefit of others, right? And I, I think you can. I think the way the United States leaves Afghanistan um, is representative of that in in many ways. Um, the evacuation uh, takes place from a single runway uh, in the middle of the city that had been captured by a victorious enemy. Uh, in many ways, the withdrawal is, is, is very successful on a tactical level. Look, the United States and its allies airlifted again from a, a, a single runway in the middle of a captured an enemy captured city, 120,000 people in 10 days or so. I mean, there, there, there's a, a, a tactical success to that. But there's also, with that, uh, demolishes all the narrative for the war. Look, if the Taliban were letting us do this the entire time, if the Taliban were working with us, coordinating with us, um, you know, General McKenzie, the head of the U.S. military uh, for the region, uh, said yesterday uh, after the last American plane left that for the past several days the Taliban have been protecting the Americans at the airport. Uh, General McKenzie also went on to say uh, in the days previous to that the Taliban had stopped attacks from occurring against the Americans. Uh, the Washington Post reported uh, over this past weekend that after the Ghani government fell, the Afghan government fell, the Taliban actually offered to the Americans to take control of Kabul rather than themselves. I mean, so they're, they're like what you see in this withdrawal is a complete demolishing of the argument that fighting and winning militarily was the only option. Because what we're seeing with the Taliban, and, and who knows what will occur, whether or not they will continue to act differently than the way all the experts in the U.S. and the West claim, but what we are seeing with the Taliban is a willingness to talk, is a willingness to negotiate, is a willingness to coordinate, is a willingness to uphold what they agreed to. Let's remember that the Taliban, since signing the agreement in February 2020 with the Americans, uh, have not attacked one single American in Afghanistan. They've upheld their end of that bargain, uh, that end of that deal. And so what you, you, you can get from that is not just, uh, you know, again, it, it, it is this demolishing of any of the pretext for why we were continuing this war, as well as, too, the this withdrawal, the way the Afghan government collapses, the way the Afghan military just disappears and goes home, you know, it just shows again the, the 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 lies that were sustaining this war. You know that somehow this was an Afghan government that was anything other than a, a kleptocracy, anything other than a, war, a government of warlords and drug lords and and, and uh, um, you know and thieves. You know, com you know that argument is completely undone by the the events of these last months. You know, as many in the Afghan government just take the money and run as well as, too, with the Afghan army and police forces dissolving because they're not being paid anymore because those above them are taking the money and run. They're no, so the soldiers and police are no longer receiving money, so they're not going to fight. Uh, you know I mean? So what you've seen in this withdrawal is really a great, um, a, a great demonstration of all the various lies that were supporting this war for so long, as well as the exposure of uh, you know how many, it, whether it be in the U.S. government, in the Congress, in the American media, in the think tanks, uh, in the military, in the intelligence community, who simply have no idea what they are talking about. Wow, unbelievable! And uh, so many lives lost, so many people killed and destroyed. Matthew, another devastating, catastrophic war is the war on Yemen. 
a war that is led by Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, the so-called you know coalition in the Gulf, and supported by the United States with arms. Without the U.S. support and its arms, they cannot even survive a day launching a war against Yemen. It's really a genocide. What's your take on that war on Yemen that is truly, we are witnessing a humanitarian crisis, catastrophe in the making in Yemen? Uh, I, I think Yemen is such a good example of, you know, I, I, most of us, I think, are hesitant to use words like good and evil, right? I mean, I think we are. But if you are going to use the, the word evil in the sense of that, the purposes of doing something for nothing other than self-interest and gain, um, knowingly acting with those who are nefarious and insidious, um, just uh, uh, saying one thing and doing the other, right? Uh, claiming we were in Afghanistan to help women and human rights when, of course, the Afghan government was brutal towards that. But then we are selling hundreds of billions of dollars of weapons to the Saudis at the same time. You know, same can be said with, say, the Israelis or the Egyptians, right? I mean, the two biggest recipients of U.S. military assistance are the Israelis and the Egyptians, both of which governments are massive human rights violators. Um, so, you know, I, I think Yemen is a, is a, a very good example of uh, if we were to use terms, uh, words such as evil, I think this is a case where you can uh, say something like that. It is a genocide. It is not possible without the support of the American government. Uh, the Biden administration, first of all, this begins under the Obama administration. The Obama administration wholeheartedly supports it, as this is a chance for uh, an ally or a proxy of the American government to gain control, to maintain control over part, again, of these borderlands, these frontiers over part this part of the empire, right? Um, so this is this is how it is viewed, and this is why it is approved by the Obama administration, and you could and and it's supported by the Obama administration as the Obama administration sells tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars of weapons to the Saudis, which are used against the Yemeni people slaughtering the Yemeni people. Uh, it's, of course, continued under the Trump administration. And then when the Biden administration comes into power this past year, Biden makes a big statement about how they are ending support for offensive Saudi uh, um, operations in, in, in Yemen, and which, of course, itself is a, is a great lie. It's just propaganda. It's just Orwellian because offensive means anything you want it to mean. Meanwhile, you can so you can sell the Saudis fighter planes and bombs and give them fuel for those fighter planes to drop those bombs, as long as the Saudis claim what they are doing in Yemen is defensive. So the Saudis can go and they can they can massacre 20, 30, 40 people with an airstrike, and they say, well, it was defensive because they we were scared they were going to attack us, and the United States says, okay, we're going to continue our support with you. I mean that is that is is where the United States is with the, the war in Yemen. Um, as you said, Saeed, it's not possible without American support. Uh, it is a genocide. Uh, it is a um, you have blockades, uh, sea and air blockades of the country, which has caused mass humanitarian suffering. And then, in the best spirits of uh, of you know the purposes you know uh, uh, of the U.S. government and those in Washington, D.C., the war is then spun as to be something about Iran and not about Saudi control of the peninsula, not about, uh, you know, decades or decades or really centuries of the consequences of colonial occupation by Britain and others, uh, you know, the involvement in foreign powers, you know, internal issues in Yemen. If you were to talk to any of the experts 
in Washington, D.C. I shouldn't say any, but most of the experts in Washington, D.C., they will somehow manufacture uh, this discussion, uh, contort themselves to explain how the war in Yemen is actually about Iran and how we have to be supporting the Saudis because the Iranians are going to be exporting their Islamic revolution, and if we don't stand up to them in Yemen, then they're going to, you know, so on and so on. I mean, again, probably sounds very familiar, these types of stories, because they've been used by the Americans for decades now. Um, so, yes, the war in Yemen is a, uh, is a genocide. The United States is culpable. It would not be possible without the support of the United States. And the fact that the Biden administration is continuing to go along with it, um, it shows that they, the Biden administration is no different than any of its predecessor administrations. And, 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 and no surprise, because, uh, you know, Barack Obama said this. You know, Barack Obama said several months ago, he said, you know, 90 percent of the people that Joe has in his administration were in my administration. This is really just the third term of the Obama administration. And then again, war profiteers, you know, I'm sure corporations, a lot of those corporations that make tons of money from arming these, from selling arms, they want these wars. You know, that reminds me, President Eisenhower in his farewell address in 1961, he warned us about the military industrial complex. He said in his farewell speech, quote, in the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist, unquote. You know, and not just Eisenhower. Um, you know, well, first let me, let me, let me say um, my favorite quote of Eisenhower, uh, supposedly related, by, uh, related by, as, as told by Susan Eisenhower, um, was that Eisenhower is standing in the Oval Office one day and and he looked and he says to, to those in the room, he, he looks at his chair in the Oval Office and he says, I pity this country uh, when the time comes that a man sits in this chair, referring to the Oval Office, um, who does not understand the U.S. military the way I do. And what Eisenhower was saying um, was not that you know the United States needs a president that was a five-star general like Eisenhower who understands strategy and tactics and logistics, et cetera. What Eisenhower was saying is that the United States has to have a president who understands that the generals and admirals always lie. Eisenhower's uh, uh, successor, John F. Kennedy, um, said the same thing. Kennedy, before he was killed, was quoted as saying, you cannot trust the generals. Don't believe anything those men in the uniform, uniform say. This is what Kennedy is saying while he's president. Kennedy, of course, learns the hard way through the Bay of Pigs, Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, uh, what's happening in Southeast Asia. And, you know, and so you have both Eisenhower and Kennedy saying you cannot trust the military. They lie all the time. Um, I mean, so and you have seen that you have certainly seen um, that with the, 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 the constant lying of these wars. As you said, Saeed, the, the war in um, Iraq was based upon lies. Uh, the war in Libya was based upon lies. To their credit, the British Parliament has done inquiries, official and formal inquiries into both the Iraq and Libyan wars. And their inquiries have, 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 have detailed, have documented, have said that both those wars were based on lies. No surprise to anyone about the Iraq war, but I think the, the Libyan war is, is a little more, um, you know, it's more recent, of course, but it's a little more telling. Uh, the Syrian war, lots of lies involved with that. Of course, the war in Yemen, as we were talking about how people in the United States in D.C. want to say this is about Iran. You know, there's another, another lie why we are involved. 
but the Afghan war absolutely based on lies. Uh, the Washington best two best sources, of course, is a special inspector general for Afghan reconstruction, John Sopko. Him and his people, appointed by Congress, have been since 2012 doing um, incredible work trying to get some accounting for this war, trying to tell the truth about the war. And Sopko is very clear in saying this war is built upon lies. And then, of course, the Washington Post in December 2019. Um, publishes their Afghan papers. Uh, Greg Whitlock is the main author on that, and they actually have a book coming out this month uh, on, uh, uh, on the Afghan papers. But those Afghan papers are a collection of thousands and thousands of pages of documents, um, a collection of the interviews of 600 uh, various American officials who served uh, at senior levels in the Bush, uh, Obama, and Trump administrations. Um, the Post, I think, got more than 400 of, of those interviews. Um, and as the Post makes clear, in those 400 interviews, um, the, the, there, was a, there, is, there was systemic lying about the war in Afghanistan. Uh, from start up until you know, the time the Post got the paper, those, those papers, there was nothing but a manufactured process of lying about the war in order to continue the war. Uh, the media was lied to, the Congress was lied to, the public was lied to, uh, you know, and, and so these wars, uh, and because, I go back to the earlier parts of the conversation, because they are about looting, because they are about uh, uh, controlling other people's uh, uh, countries, expanding, maintain, maintaining and expanding the empire, as well as, uh, you know, the fact that they are for domestic political purposes, you know, certainly the Iraq War was and the Afghan War was as well, the commander-in-chief, the president needs to look tough, needs a military victory, can't be accused of being weak, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you know, the only way to sustain these wars are to keep them out of, of sight, which is something the United States has become very good at, very good, uh, or to lie about them. Um, the fact that these wars are hidden is, is the reason why they continue, uh, because, again, the, the, the immorality of these wars alone would, would, would cause these wars to be stopped if there was sufficient attention paid to it and if there was political courage to do so. But because there is no attention being paid to it, because the American people think that these wars do not directly affect them, which is incorrect, there is no political pressure, there is no political courage to end these wars. And what the United States has done, Saeed, over the last 10 years, you know, since the end of the, since the second half of the Obama administration, has been to convert these wars into secret wars. So they use special operations and CIA uh, uh, personnel. Uh, they use drones. Uh, they use contractors, you know, all of which are, uh, are either secret or they're not accountable to the American public or to the American Congress or to the, to the media. Uh, the United States uses um, proxy forces, right? So it's not Americans bleeding and being killed over in these wars anymore because that attracts public attention. That attracts media attention. The Congress gets upset about it because they can use it for political points against the other party if for no other reason. But so as long as it's black people killing black people, brown people killing brown people, the uh, United States doesn't care too much about it. And if there is attention paid to it, it's brushed away with the, uh, you know, the narrative of, oh, those people have been killing each other forever, you know, which is complete nonsense. Um, so, you know, there, there is the, 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 there, there's the lies of this war and then there's the hiding of these wars. And, and both go hand in hand and both go back to, I think, the shame and immorality that define these wars. That's why they have to be lied about. That's why they have to be hidden.
Matthew, last question. What would you advise President Biden to do with regards to the U.S. wars, policies, and involvements? I would, I would say, gosh, with the Biden administration, I mean, uh, just very bluntly, resign. That would, I mean, that's not going <laughs> to, would never happen, right? But that's what my gut is, right? Is resign. I mean, you're culpable. You have caused this. You have done this. You know, and the same thing too. I mean, and that these people need to be held accountable. That uh, the Bush, Obama, Trump. Biden administrations must be held accountable. I mean, these are war crimes that were committed, uh, but they never will be held uh, uh, accountable. You know, and that's the that's one of the the great tragedies of all this. The the unimaginable suffering of, of all these people throughout you know the Muslim world, from west coast of Africa all the way to Pakistan, whose lives have been destroyed, societies destroyed. Uh, with with uh, what hope is there for the future uh, in so many of these places? And there's no accountability for them. Um, I think, you know, I guess maybe a more, if I did have a chance to, to sit with the president, um, you know, I probably would not say something <laughs> like resign, but, you know, I, I, I think it would be, you know, Mr. President, look, you have the opportunity to do some things differently. You have seen what the consequences of choosing violence have been. You have seen how these wars have spread, how instability have spread, how the consequences, you know, Al-Qaeda, uh, uh, the, the Islamic State, uh, you know, others have just benefited from these wars. Uh, you've seen that you, you know that these wars do not uphold what are stated American virtues and principles and values. We are supporting despots and dictatorships and human rights abusers all across the world. Um, you know, it's, it's something that you know the United States provides weapons to about seventy or seventy-five percent of the non-democratic governments of the world. Right, and nearly all those non-democratic governments are also human rights violating governments. U.S. provides about three quarters of, of them with weapons. Uh, I mean, so um, you know, I, I, I think I would try to make that a, that pitch to President Biden that look, based on the evidence, this doesn't work. It makes us less safe. It actually makes us weaker. Uh, you know, um, and, and so I, I think that is where I would try and uh, convince him that things need to be done differently um, and that it's not, it, it's not tenable. Um, yes, the United States has seemingly unlimited resources, but the consequences continue to get worse and worse. And the more people we kill, the more chance there is for revenge. We have killed uh, uh, millions of people in these wars over the last 20 years. At some point, someone will come back for vengeance. It's only just a matter of time. And if we do not understand that, we open ourselves to that possibility, or we continue to open ourselves to that possibility. Um, there's also the, the thing of like, look, we, what this withdrawal has shown, though, is it has shown, again, with the airlift, 120,000 people off a single runway in 10 days, you, you did see, we have seen videos of American Marines holding babies in their arms, giving children water. You know, there is something that can be said for choosing the other side of violence. Violence only begets violence. The human race has known this forever. Um, we are no different, but if we choose to do things differently with the resources we have, we can actually make an impact in the world um, that will then have benefits for the United States in terms of the United States' own safety, uh, it, 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 its own uh, credibility, which seems to be such a concern for people in Washington, D.C., the credibility of the United States, but as well, too, then it's only Americans, the United States' own prosperity. Look, Mark, Mark Pocan um, uh, congressman has a, a bill uh, that 
would take 1% of the U.S. defense budget, which is about $7.5 billion, and put it into manufacturing vaccines for the world. The, the President of the United States has the power of his office where he can order through the Defense Production Act U.S. industries to do this. Can you imagine the benefits to the world, but also to the United States? That $7 billion spent on vaccine would do more to protect Americans than anything the United States military will ever do or has ever done. Hundreds of thousands of lives would be saved if such a vaccine was distributed to the, the world. But for what reason does the United States choose not to do that? Well, we are unfortunately out of time. What a great conversation with Matthew Ho, a former Marine and State Department official who in 2009 resigned his position with the State Department in Afghanistan in protest of the Afghan war. He is now a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy and a member of the Eisenhower Media Initiative. Thank you so much. We greatly appreciate your time, Matthew. Uh, thank you, Saeed. And that does it for the show today. Thanks for listening. This is Saeed, executive producer and host of Arab Voices. Until we meet next week, peace on earth. supported community radio kboo portland kboo community radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of kboo in accordance with requirements of the communications act of 1934 and certification requirements of the corporation for public broadcasting information about kboo community radio's open meeting policy is available on our website at kboo.fm Due to the temporary closures of in-station activity at KBU, meetings will be conducted online via public video conferencing unless otherwise noted. A public link and phone number to attend the meetings are available on our website. The Program Advisory Committee meets on the second Tuesday of the month at 6 p.m. Please visit our website at kboo.fm to verify if a meeting is being held. Welcome to Sprouts, radio from 